0: I'm Christian Walmer, and this is Calling All Stations, the podcast that keeps you up to date with all the latest transport issues. And with me is Mark Walker of Cogitamas. Hi there,
1: Mark. Hello, Christian. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the announcement of the headquarters of Great British Railways. We're then going to be exploring the issue of road safety in Great Britain. We also have uh, an interview that you recorded at the parliamentary reception of the Urban Transport Group. And then in your thought from the Departure Lounge, we're going to consider possible names for the individual lines comprising the London Overground System. Right, well, let's start on uh, Great British Railways.
0: And so we've had this amazing announcement that uh, after a competition launched by Grant Shapps, the uh, predecessor, but two of the current uh, incumbent the transport secretary, Mark Harper, uh, that the headquarters of this organization is going to be in Derby. So it beat off York and Doncaster and Crewe and a couple of other places. Apparently quite narrowly Doncaster came second, I'm told uh, by inside sources. Um, But the trouble is, Mark Harper gave this uh, announcement in a written uh, statement in Parliament. And uh, one would expect that, given that this is the launch of an of a organisation that is going to sort of run Britain's railways, or is it, one would have expected some detail. You know, what, what does this mean? How big is this office going to be? Uh, what are its powers going to be? But uh, in talking to people in the industry, they have no particular kind of idea of what this means. Some people say that this is just going to be a PO box with you know half a dozen people um, and a security guard, or some people say, well, you know, no, it's going to be a major organisation. Have you got um, any thoughts, uh, Mark? Because you know, certainly. There's a paucity of ideas on uh, Mark Harper's uh, uh,
1: statement here. I, I think, first of all, I'd say congratulations to the great city of Derby on winning the competition, and it is undoubtedly a preeminent railway city in th- the UK. But when it comes to GBR, I'm probably as mystified as everybody else. You might recall that when the William Shaps plan for Rail was published almost two years ago, my company, perhaps rashly or with some optimism, launched a new service called Rail Legislator, which was going to describe how the uh, William Shapps Plan for Rail was implemented through an act of parliament. And although we were able to produce a number of briefings on some aspects of the process of setting up Great British Railways, we're still minus any legislation at all and as you rightly say the government didn't take the opportunity uh, with the announcement of the headquarters uh, on uh earlier this week to give any real clarity on the legislative program and the uh, the destination for reform just the destination for the uh, putative headquarters no indeed i mean i i thought about this and i
0: i was talking to people um uh at, at a uh the the uh, reception of Urban Transport Group and a lot, quite a lot of railway people there, and and discussing. them for example, I was talking to somebody who worked for a rolling stock company, um, and I was saying, well, you know, do you know if uh, this organisation is going to organise the rolling stock? Because of course, in the old days, British Rail used to organise the rolling stock around the whole uh, r- railways, as you know. And so, what would happen is that uh, they would. Uh, have some time expired stock, or they'd want some new stock somewhere, and they'd cascade kind of stock from one area to another. And nowadays, that's very difficult to do because you have to involve all the different stakeholders the, the leasing companies, uh, the various uh, uh, operating companies, and of course, uh, the Department for Transport and ministers and, and whatever. And it's quite a difficult thing to do. So I said, Well, you know, is this something that great british railways is good organised because that would be a good rationalization and uh the chap i was talking to said no idea absolutely no idea uh no idea of what uh, how it's going to work and who's going to procure the rolling stock or who's going to make the decisions or, or anything so that's that's one thing another thing was fares i mean i mean gosh mark we've discussed fares a bit before on this podcast but you know it is so complicated and so difficult to get fares. I mean, I bought some fares, uh, some tickets the other day uh, to go to Birmingham um, uh, on Chiltern Railways, and even that, you know, it's just one one line up to Birmingham. Even that kind of offered me all sorts of things, and I had to make decisions and uh, so on, and uh, absolutely kind of hopeless. Uh, uh,
1: and this is one it's of the flagship elements of the William Shap's plan for rail and the the reform program was to be uh, a, a fares reform and the suggestion really of some kind of simplification but although there have been various conferences and webinars that have uh, suggested that something is happening there's been no material difference to passengers in almost two years and you can't help thinking that if the the product was easier to buy and less less terrifying in fact <laughs> to, to buy um then we might actually be seeing even more people coming onto the passenger system no you're absolutely
0: right even me with all my experience <laughs> of the railways, i'm always slightly worried i'm going to click on the wrong button and mark we have to remember that uh the great british railways transition team employs not 100 not 200, but 235 equivalent full-time employees. That's 235 people who are working on this stuff. And, you know, we have had precious little uh, to show for it. I mean, really kind of, you know, we are no further forward. And I somewhat suspect that there's kind of big rows going on inside the Department for Transport uh, between the various players. I mean, the, the other thing, the last thing to mention, though I mean, we could mention many is is the contracts themselves. I mean, are we any the wiser of, you know, how this is going to work? And and are they going to force all these uh, operations to be privatised in the way that the original rail legislation, privatisation legislation did in 1993? Or are they going to have a,
1: a mixed economy? Um, you know, what is what is going to happen to all this? It's certainly, the, the presumption seems to be uh, under the present government that the passenger service contracts, as they will be known, will be offered to the market uh, with uh, a competitive process to to select the operators. But you can't help wondering whether anybody would actually be interested in bidding for them, given that they appear to be so constrained uh, in terms of their their remit and their their levels of commercial freedom and if you accept that and not everybody does of course but if you accept that private sector operators do bring uh, a degree of uh, entrepreneurship and and marketing skill to uh, to these kind of businesses they don't appear to be being offered very much scope to deploy those skills in the way that the passenger service contracts are currently being com- configured. Well, let,
0: let me give you a nice little example of of uh, of that and the fact that maybe the uh, private sector is not this kind of wonderful organisation. Now, uh, we haven't mentioned the fact that the other big news of the week, of course, was that Avanti uh, has been given a, another six months despite its uh, appalling record on the West Coast mainline.
1: And- uh, I believe there comments... was cheering in the streets of Birmingham and Manchester. <laughs> <at those views.
0: laughs> I somewhat doubt there will be, there's more likely to be scenes like we've seen in Paris over the last few days on the streets over that news. Um, but uh, the they, um, uh, one of my correspondents, and I do get a wonderful lot of people who email me all sorts of kind of gossip about the rail industry, which which helps enormously. Uh, pointed out that um, he was trying to get tickets on both the east coast and the west coast mainline now that the rail strikes have been abandoned within about eight or 10 hours of uh, the end of the strike, East Coast had its tickets up available for the what were previously the strike days. Whereas Avanti took at least 48 and, and even longer on some, some services to manage to put their tickets back up for sale. And similarly, on uh, LNER, the East Coast, which is publicly run, I should be pointed out. I should be pointed out. Uh, LNER, on LNER, you can book tickets right up to the end of September, whereas on uh, uh, Avanti, you can only uh, buy tickets till till June, sometime in June. So again, you know, this idea, and of course, uh, you know, regular, regular listeners will know that, but my feeling about, you know, that the, Private sector is always better. I've been very skeptical about that all the way through.
1: Christian, you picked up an interesting story in the Times this week relating to road safety. Uh, Yes, I mean, it's a rather odd piece, um, which is headlined, more troops killed at wheel
0: than war. And what it writes about is the fact that more British soldiers die in car crashes than on the battlefield, according to the Ministry of uh, Defence. And that's because uh, there are an awful lot of uh, car crashes involving uh, army personnel. In fact, there's they, no fewer than 3,800 in the past year. Um, and the report says that Uh, soldiers are at a 50% increased risk of dying in a traffic collision compared with a member of the public. Now, part of this, of course, is that they're mostly young men who we know have a higher rate uh, anyway. They often have to drive long distances, probably, you know, often quite tired between uh, various places. But I think it does highlight the way that, uh, you know, we still take this stuff for granted. You know, the uh, rail uh, sorry road traffic casualties have not improved really much in the past decade. So I was very pleased that uh, I uh, managed to do an interview uh, on this uh, when I was in Parliament the other day uh, with uh, David Davis. I'm with uh, David Davis who's been a running pact and I'm sure he'll explain what that is, uh, for the last uh, ten years, and he's just about to leave. So I thought I'd uh, have a chat with him about what PACTS is, what he feels has achieved over the last uh, ten years, and what he thinks the future is. So, David, tell me about PACTS.
2: Hello, Christian. Well, thank you ever so much. Um, Yes, we've just managed to meet here in Parliament, and uh, PACs is the Parliamentary Advisory Council for Transport Safety. We're a completely independent body, even though we have Parliament in our name. And our mission is to try and reduce the toll of death and injury particularly on the roads uh, where there's still something like 1,700 people killed every year in the UK and it's just simply far too high and unacceptable. Um, I'd like to say my 10 years at PAX has been completely successful but I have to say in the words of the Department of Transport that casualty levels have plateaued so they're not much lower now than they were 10 years ago. Um, So You know you could say well how successful have we been? I think actually Pax has made a difference and there have been improvements even though um, to some extent things have stood still. The government has at last agreed to set up a thing called the Road Safety Investigation Branch which will put roads on the same footing as air and rail and maritime so when uh, there will be an independent investigation body to in, to investigate um, crashes or groups of crashes, types of crashes, and I think that will be very powerful because it will make recommendations to the Minister, to major organisations, and they won't simply be able to ignore them as they might do from me <laughs> I've, yes i've long advocated for that i, I i've uh, talked about it uh yeah.
0: quite a lot H- how will that actually work because uh, you know with uh, 1700 deaths a year are they mm. good investing everyone are they going to invest in other types of accidents or how's it going to work
2: no it's a very good point and and i would you know give great credit to people in the rail sector and elsewhere who helped us in you know in from their experience in rail you know set up their own one and and it'll be themed investigations so for example it might look at um, uh, casualties collisions uh, involving hgvs or involving uh, buses or involving um, people traveling in the course of work so they might go to big high profile individual crashes if there's something i think they feel is Novel or um, needs to be learning, and it will also take on the role of um, investigating crashes involving autonomous vehicles, so called autonomous vehicles, which is a whole new ballgame.
0: Which is something I, as you know, I've written a lot about <laughs> yes. and I'm very skeptical about. Um, but so, uh, t- tell me w- in, uh, other things in the last 10 years where you think uh, things have got better,
2: and then we might uh, we'll talk about things why things haven't got even better. Okay. Well, vehicles have got a lot safer, you know. The sort of new technology, the new the standards of new safety standards of new vehicles uh, is, is much, much higher. Um, for and, the occupants, well, not yes, for the occupants, but actually, the way that has moved now is to consider the other road users as well. So, for example, here we are in London, um, partly due to the all credit to Transport for London, they've introduced new. Uh, direct vision standards for lorries, so so to make it easier for dr- lorry drivers to see pedestrians and cyclists around them. So right. I think we are, you know, we are starting to see more and more focus on um, other road users, and in, even in things with cars. Many new cars now will have uh, autonomous emergency braking, so it, it, it will detect a pedestrian that steps out in front of a car, and if you're going at the speed limit, hopefully it will bring you to a safe stop. So that's some technological
0: changes. Do you think there's also been some? Uh, Legislative things that the government has done, apart from the creation of this new uh, road accident investigation branch, are there other things that the government has done?
2: Uh, Yes, there are. I mean, they've they've introduced new legislation and technology to detect drug driving. So that's that's been really helpful. And and sadly, we are you know learning that there's a hell of a lot of drug driving going on, and it may be accounted for the same number of deaths on the road as drink driving. You know, something like two hundred, maybe three hundred a year. Oh, really? Right. So that's that's a legislative change, backed up by technology. Um, and then, not quite legislation, but the highway, new, new iteration of the Highway Code. Which, yes, has that helped? Well, it's interesting to see whether it's, it's certainly given strengthen strength the rights of um, pedestrians and cyclists. Um, whether it's made that much difference on the road is still a slightly moot point. Yes, do people know about it? I would say they do. A lot of people know about it. I mean, I you know, uh, <laughs> they, they've talked about it. They've, they've misinterpreted it, uh, but it's been you know, words that most Frankly, most people don't know what's in the highway code. But I would say this is a change that has been talked about. And what's the beneficial aspect of that change? Well, it, it, it strengthens the rights of vulnerable road users. And it, it, it the message to motorists is, you know, um, if you're on a heavier, faster car, which pre- presents a, or, or, or a lorry, you know, not just cars, um, which presents a threat to more vulnerable road users, you, you need to take extra care. You know, it's not to say everyone shouldn't take care, but, you know, the, the yeah. weight is put more on the the, the,
0: the, the the person with a dangerous vehicle. Absolutely, right? absolutely. So uh, looking forward, um, what hasn't changed and what needs to change in order to bring that toll down? Because,
2: OK, it's plateaued, but it hasn't gone down. No, it hasn't gone down nearly as much as it could and should do. And and, and the UK's got some tremendous skills and technology which we're just not capitalising. So first of all, the government's got to get behind it. The government's been, I'm frankly, has not had... Casualty reduction targets for the last over ten years in twenty ten more than more than ten, and that has coincided with a period of casualties not going down. Now, oh, that's
0: interesting. The, the Tory know,
2: government took away. Uh, they did. Casu- well, the Labour government had casualty reduction targets, and, and the Tory government before that, right? You know, yeah, so, <laughs> yes. So and that's what was a, there? Why did they do that? Well, they said that we were coming out of the recession, the two thousand eight nine recession. Uh, there had been rather an obsession with targets under Gordon Brown, right. and there was a bit of a backlash. But but I think you know. 13 years on, it's time they, they restored that and made it absolutely clear it's not acceptable to, to kill and injure that number of people every year. So that's I think that's the first thing, that's a strategic um
0: And uh, have they framework. talked about bringing that back in?
2: They they are talking about um, publishing a new, what they're calling a road safety strategic framework. Right. And I, well, <laughs> I'm going to retire before it happens. You know. <laughs> but um, whether it will have targets, I rather doubt. Um, but I think... You know, they are moving in the right direction, we hope, uh, but they are going to back it up with actions. So that means investing in the road network, making the road network safer, you know, more uh, high-quality segregated cycle routes and um, crossings for pedestrians. Um, They've got to give the police more resources. So Home Secretary has just included roads policing in something called the Strategic Policing Requirement, which sets out the sort of highest-level priorities on which police forces must... Uh, resource and, and must participate, in the, and for the first time, they've put rose policing in that. So that's that's an encouragement. We can, you know, get a build build on that. We used to be at the forefront of vehicle safety regulations. Since we left the EU, um, we have not adopted those new regulations. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I mean regulations which we helped develop. You right. know I went to the consultation here in London on behalf of the EU. <laughs> it's right. ridiculous, and then we, you know. We've we've not implemented them, and the government's saying, well, perhaps you know we'll do something slightly different. And I don't know what's different about UK motorists or UK cars. You know.
0: So that that means the regulations concerning car safety. So yeah. if we produced a car here, exactly, we would probably have to conform with the EU anyway because uh, the safety standards.
2: Well. Um, if we don't bring in the regulations, we don't have to, right. but if we want to export it to Europe, yes. and you do. In the UK automotive industry doesn't want different standards, you know, sort of, I oh, will introduce 12 out of 15 of them or something like that, it's just not, you know, it's not helpful to them. Right. Um, and I think there is a bit of, um, uh, you know, politics going on there, you know, can we find a Brexit benefit um, rather <laughs> than a road safety right. criteria. And last, so last day,
0: has the mix of people uh, killed on the roads changed? Are there more uh, passengers or more pedestrians or is it pretty much uh, the same?
2: The proportions have stay broadly the same. I'm glad to say there have, apart from 2020 when COVID was a bit of a strange year, um, f- cyclists' deaths have come down. Um, so generally, just below 100, which which is which is good. Motorcyclist deaths have are still far too high, but have also come down. Um, pedestrian deaths, I think, have gone up and down a bit. varying. most people die in cars. You know, that, that's uh. the reality. We you know we sometimes think about road safety as the minority groups, the vulnerable road users, the pedestrians, and, and but actually, you know, most people need to realise it's in cars or in collision with cars that people die, and uh, you know that's that's still the uh,
0: priority. And what's a single as the last thing? What's a single measure you'd want most to implement
2: tomorrow? <laughs> um, I mean. Okay, I, I think the most controversial one, and possibly the most useful one, is intelligent speed assistance. So all cars, you know, have intelligent speed fitted, which is which is coming. Limit um, to the speed limit. Not well. Oh. I mean, this is advisory. Right. You know, we, we're not at the stage of making it mandatory yet unless people want to some people to you know so it will just warn you if you're going over the speed limit which actually some people like because then you know they don't get a ticket <laughs> and uh, they keep their license um and i think if you know that will help people get used to the idea of you know calmer more civilized so, so you'd
0: have a you'd have something a voice would tell you yeah. you're going yeah. over the speed yeah bit. that's that that's right. yeah yeah Different. okay brilliant idea yep. let's hope it happens thank uh, you very much david thanks christian great right, for thanks okay. Cheers.
1: That was a very interesting conversation, Christian. And you managed at the same event to move into a further very interesting conversation uh, with Jonathan Bray, the outgoing chief executive of the Urban Transport Group. Uh,
0: Yes, oddly, also with somebody who was leaving. So I took the opportunity to have a a good chat with Jonathan, who's uh, been around for even longer than David Davis and had a lot of interesting things to say. I've just been at the parliamentary reception of the Urban Transport Group and uh, I'm with Jonathan Bray who's uh, actually run the Urban Transport Group for uh, the past 20 years and is now leaving for new pastures and I thought I'd have a chat with him about the work of the Urban Transport Group and uh, how we see things uh, have changed over the last 20 years. So, uh, Jonathan, thank you very much for uh, doing this. Um, so, tell me what the Urban Transport Group is and uh, maybe how it's changed a bit over the last 20 years.
3: Sure. So, the Urban Transport Group brings together the public sector transport authorities for the largest urban areas, Transport for London, Transport for Greater Manchester, Transport of West Midlands and so on, uh, for all those large urban areas areas uh, in terms of how things have changed over time uh, you know, glass half full glass half empty i think if you look back 20 years um, where we are now in london uh, you wouldn't have the levels of actual travel you have now uh, you've also seen a big transformation in, in london's transport system compared to where it used to be in terms of uh, the bus fleet the underground what have you the London Overground. Um, so there have been some positives, but still some uh, negatives there, some challenges, particularly around uh, r- long-term revenue support for public transport outside London, I would say was a big one. And, you know, we could be seeing faster progress than we get in on, on devolution of powers to the other cities as well as what's happening in London.
0: Uh, I mean, it's interesting that you focus on London as one of the positives. I, I mean, surely much of uh, the counter argument is that uh, the outside London, the areas have been somewhat starved investment certainly a lot of people in the north and uh, midlands say that
3: yeah um, absolutely Uh, TFL are one of our members so but I think also people in other city regions know we need a strong capital but also what London has done is demonstrated that it is the right way to go to invest in in public transport and active travel uh, and that lesson has been taken elsewhere I mean what London's also done is is, uh, gone quite far and fast on traffic restraint and there's some plans ahead on that too Um, and I think that's uh, uh, another challenge for the cities outside London uh, to to look at as well as flying the flag for public transport in their own areas. It's also got to be about uh, looking towards some of the traffic uh, restraint measures. But uh, I mean, both Manchester and Edinburgh have
0: tried that, gone down that route and and not succeed. Do you think that there might be a climate for uh, wider, either congestion charging or urban road pricing at some point in the near future?
3: Uh, Well, we have got uh, workplace parking levy famously in Nottingham uh, which was bitterly opposed at the time but uh, no one's opposing it now and it has generated the funding to help Nottingham probably be the most outstanding city that we have in England in terms of what it's achieved in transport it's public transport share uh, and what it's done there and we've also got charging for private cars on the uh, clean air zone in Birmingham uh, which was quite a bold step, and also, of course, got a lot of opposition. But I think there's more to more to go. I think one of the things that's interesting about London, uh, uh, and might set a precedent elsewhere if it happens, is could we get to a position in London where uh, you you get an, you have an app where you uh, pay for your road use, but also you pay for your public transport use. You can get information and advice on the active travel alternatives. Um, um, this is a, a kind of variation on what people call mass mobility as a service. A horrible name. I,
0: I've always been slightly sceptical about that, but uh, I think
3: uh, rightly so. Um, <laughs> one th- good thing about packing this job in is I won't have to watch any more powerpoints about maths. I hope. <laughs> yes. However, however, imagine a scenario where you could do that, where you could you could pay for your, the road use you were you were doing, in, uh, but also you could see how that compared with making the same trip by public transport, and then you could incentivise public transport, or indeed walking and cycling. Uh,
0: Yes, but that would be done by the local authorities, surely? That's the thing about Mass, is being seen as a kind of private sector
3: overlay on the transport system, whereas you you need to do it with the public sector. Well, well, I think the thing about uh, uh, Mass is that um, it doesn't wash its face financially, um, so either some big venture capital company is going to have to stand behind it, or the public sector stands behind it. Um, because otherwise it would have happened, and it really hasn't happened too much. Uh, but what you are seeing in, in in some German cities now is they are uh, moving in that direction. Uh, Berlin says it does now have a have a mass, and there are also some interesting things in their suburban areas around mobility hubs where you can. Uh, park your bike or, or, or pick up a new scooter or pick up a rental car which I think is is something we need to be looking at here so yeah I think it's a horrible term I am uh, I am sceptical about it but I think if you if you get it in the right context on, on the right basis then um, uh, you could see how that could be the way forward i um- what
0: about, uh, isn't the biggest issue for you, particularly uh, outside London, declining bus use and and, uh, the uh, lack of money for for buses? Is that not really a great concern given that it's patched up with kind of three month deals at the moment?
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things about COVID is people said, don't let the crisis go to waste. But I think we kind of did because I think the approach of national government was to patch and mend their way through until we can get back to normal. Um, and we're still patching and mending now. In some ways we're not unique, you can see this in other countries around the world, Uh, but that means that we've got this um, hand-to-mouth existence on keeping bus services going, Um, and what happens is every time we reach a new cliff edge on funding, the next one is in end of June, um, the the operators cut back services anyway. And we've seen some pretty disastrous uh, deteriorations in networks, Uh, and that is a big concern, because once they've gone, it's hard to get people back. Um, and that's what's going on, and it's kind of going in and in a... Across across lots of cities? Yeah, across lots of cities, and it's kind of death by a thousand cuts rather than pulling the sticking plaster off at one go um, as we go from one short-term funding deal to the next. And again, look what's happening in London. I know it's not ideal, it's not perfect, but at least London does have a medium-term funding deal. The government has said, in effect, it's standing behind every bus service in London. Um, if it's good enough for London, it should be good enough for the other big city regions too.
0: Where does the uh, £2 bus fare come in? Do you think that, that was a success and uh, it should be maintained? Or do you think it's just a crude measure?
3: Well, I think what's been happening is that politicians, partly because transport authorities, I think, haven't really been coming to politicians with propositions about fares reductions and pros and cons of different options, partly because they're so worried about keeping the show on the road. So politicians around the world really have said, right, this is what I want to do, this is this funding. They grab at it. Um, uh, and you, you can see that everywhere. And all these different um, options for fares have have pros and cons. Um, uh, if you look at the two pound fare, uh, then the main beneficiaries are probably people in the counties and shires who are making relatively long journeys. You know, Northumberland to Newcastle, where it can be eight or nine quid. If you look in our cities, uh, two pound single, unless you're not coming home, is four pound return, which isn't a lot more than you'd be paying already. Um, so. Uh, but I do think it has social inclusion benefits. But I think there's something bigger, something bigger that people want in cities outside London, which is a London-style ticketing experience. I won't say Oyster because we've moved, we use bank cards and all the rest of it now. But people know that um, they kind of trust the system in London. Um, they know it's one network, one brand, one ticketing system. Yeah, surely, and ca- that's what credit we want. cards. Are, I mean, uh, yeah. bank cards are the, are the future for that, not yeah. an Oyster type system. No, which yeah. is why I said a London-style yeah. ticketing experience so yeah it's phone apps it's uh it's bank cards and plastic cards as well and some people uh, still may want to use cash but um uh we're some way off that we you know we need the system sitting behind all those different technical options that there are uh, but we also need the, the regulatory framework to do that and i think we are making progress there uh, in uh, manchester the first publicly controlled bus services will be rolling out in the garages in places like Wigan in September. That will roll around the whole of Greater Manchester, Liverpool are falling on the heels, which means that when you get off uh, Manchester Piccadilly or Liverpool Lime Street, it will start to look and feel a bit more like London. It won't be red, it will be yellow, there won't be a tube and that kind of thing, but um, you'll have one network, one brand one ticket and that's you know we used to have that in the old days (laughs) yes um it's not rocket science but that's the that's a last it looks like we're we're heading back there and that's a huge breakthrough and i think it'll have quite a big impact when it when it finally happens starts happening this autumn
0: labour is uh saying that they might allow councils to have uh new bus companies um is that something that
3: you think would help too yeah i think it should be part of the mix the ability to have uh, municipal Uh, bus companies I think the municipals we have are a mixed bag there are some brilliant ones uh, Edinburgh I think Lothian I don't know Christian if you've uh, used the bus as much in Edinburgh but uh, a bit like London everyone uses them Uh, I've never been on one that's dirty Um, they always feel brand new Um, it's a simple system and it's smart Um, so that's a really good municipal Uh, Nottingham is good too Reading Uh, Reading is good um, so municipals can be part of the mix I think the challenge comes when you try and insert them within a wider deregulated system or a franchising system because then you're in a position where the municipal has to bid like everybody else Yes. Um, and then does it have to behave like everyone else what happens if it doesn't win the contract what happens if it wins the first one but not the second one Right. to me I think there's a case for saying right if that's the way you want to go suspend the market altogether the municipal runs it in perpetuity um, which could raise questions as well so I think there's 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 some. There's, I think municipals are part of the mix. I just think there probably needs to be a bit more thinking about what that actually means in practice and how to make it work best in practice, now how to get the best out of that option. OK, well, thank you, Jonathan. And what's the future for Jonathan now? Uh, I'll be uh, taking uh, a break, uh, spending a bit more time in Estonia, with my partners there, famously with its free fairs. Um, uh, but also in, uh, in the autumn, I shall be... Coming back as a, a gun for hire, independent consultant, so um, got a few uh, plans there, a few hands in the fire. So I will be, I'll be back. Okay. Enjoy Estonia.
0: Yes, uh, the one place where they have free buses, don't they?
3: They certainly do. Uh, yeah, for instance, in Tallinn. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah.
0: Okay. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah. Thank you. Cheers.
1: Here's Christian's thought from the departure lounge. Uh, Well, I came across an interesting
0: uh, aspect of uh, transport in London, actually, which is that Transport for London is spending four million pounds, which is quite a pretty penny these days, four million pounds, because it wants to sort out exactly what the London Overground Services should be called. Now, there's half a dozen lines uh, at the moment all marked orange on the map, and which have run between various destinations. Uh, So there's one from Euston to uh, Watford Junction. There's one between uh, Stratford and Richmond and so on. Um, And they're all called London Overground and they're all orange on the map. And quite rightly, and I think this is money well spent, you know, people are rather confused. In fact, I'm even rather confused when I'm in Hackney. There's two different lines and there's ones that go to Clapton Junction and there's ones that go to Stratford and so on. And it is very confusing so uh, the idea is to give them names but then there's a real problem uh, because what sort of names do they give them i mean do they say the barking line or the richmond line or the watford junction line i think that's probably uh, problematic do they sort of give them some colors you know the purple line or the green line many metro systems around the world uh do that or maybe they could call them by flowers, daffodil or bluebell or whatever. And so uh, I thought, well, if any uh, listeners to this podcast have any ideas for that, um, you know, please uh, uh, do contribute it, email me or, or whatever and send it in. And uh, uh, maybe we'll kind of uh, put those to Transport for London. So thank you for uh, listening to this uh, latest podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoy it and please do uh, come back to it next time.
1: Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamas Limited production. If you've enjoyed listening to our podcast, please give us a five star rating with whichever podcast platform you use.